0: From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Ask any New Orleanian what they eat on Mondays and you're likely to get the reply, red beans and rice. For a hundred years now, that humble bean has been practically synonymous with Camellia brand. Back in 1923, Lucius Hayward founded Camellia, naming the company for his wife's favorite flower. Over the last century, generations of New Orleanians have showered much love and devotion on that dried kidney bean. But as you'll learn on this week's episode, it's been far from a one-sided love affair. Vince Hayward and the entire fourth generation of Camellia have devoted their centennial year to showing the Big Easy just how much they love those bean eaters back. Award-winning documentary filmmaker Joe York was commissioned to craft what Camellia's CEO Vince Hayward calls a love letter to New Orleans. Here's a taste
1: of that video. Nobody likes to start off the week on a Monday, but you come home and you got a wonderful, glorious pot of red beans. At that moment, when I mean, you take that first spoonful, you rest, and you know that you're
2: home. When I used to come home from college, my grandmother would always make me red beans and rice. That was her way of saying that she loved me and she was welcoming me home.
3: The argument can be made that red beans and rice should be named the national dish of New Orleans, you know, if that makes sense. Willie Mae Seaton, one of the most famous black restaurateurs in the city, uh, famous for her fried chicken, but also for her red beans, she called this a a red bean city. And she was quoted as saying, like, if you ain't cooking red beans here in New Orleans, you're out. Buster Holmes built a career serving red beans. This is an essential dish to New Orleans.
0: That was Vance Vocrason of Vocrasan Sausage, writer Lola's Eric Eli, and historian Ryan Fertel, just a few of the voices featured in Joe York's new film, which you can view on CamelliaBrand.com. After this video debuted in New Orleans City Council chambers this week. Council members adopted a resolution designating March 2023 as Red Bean Month in the Crescent City. Hoping to perpetuate our indelible red bean culture in future generations, Camellia will hold screenings in New Orleans schools throughout the month, followed, of course, by a lunch of red beans and rice. But that's not the only way Camellia is illustrating their love for the city. Over the course of their centennial year, they'll be donating one million bowls of beans to Second Harvest Food Bank. The largest anti-hunger network in South Louisiana, Second Harvest has been serving the region for over 40 years. To learn more about this year-long partnership, we spoke with Second Harvest's president and CEO, Natalie J. Rowe. While Natalie's not native to New Orleans, she's someone who quickly learned to appreciate the important role red beans play here. Natalie, what was your first experience with a bowl of red beans? Because I guess guess that wasn't something that was on your regular weekly menu before you moved here. Not really.
4: I mean, I've been in the south for a long long time I lived in Savannah so we had something approximate but I don't know I mean don't tell anyone this because I have two grandbabies and my son still living in Savannah but everything just tastes better here I mean I you know including red beans and rice so all of a sudden I was tasting a, something that I thought was I mean good but not necessarily special and this is like oh my gosh this is the best thing and I need it every Monday just like everyone else because it's just it has some special ingredient when it's done well here.
0: And how long have you been at Second Harvest Food Bank now?
4: So I've been here since January 2006. In the fall of 2005 I was at the Joint Field Office. I've actually been in food banking for 30 years. I was the CEO in Savannah, Georgia, for a lot of years and then worked as a loaned executive for Feeding America. Um, And then after Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, uh, there was no place I wanted to be more than here in South Louisiana. And I applied for the position at this food bank. And once the board could get back together after they'd been dispersed all over the place with Hurricane Katrina, I was fortunate enough to be hired in January 2006. I was remembering in the aftermath of Katrina, you know, you remember what that was like. We were feeding people under tents. We we became the largest food bank in the world overnight, and that's because a lot of, of people and generous donors from all over the country and the world actually came to our aid and and um, brought millions and millions of pounds of food every month. And camellia beans was one of those people that were first in line to say, how can we help? And this is the kind of food when you've lost everything and you're cooking under a tent and hundreds of people are there, um, red beans and rice, you know, those, those kinds of staples that mean home to so many people, that's what's important. It matters so much.
0: That's such a big memory you brought back to me because all the displaced folks all across the United States um, at that time, I was so involved with slow food, and the slow food chapters were having regular red beans and rice feeds at their local farmer's markets just to give everybody that little taste of home. Yeah,
4: that was my introduction to slow foods, actually... um, after Katrina because we had to confront a system that had broken down on all levels Um, so we were trying to solve these these challenges of food production and the millions of people that needed additional help you know all at one time so people that weren't natural collaborators were coming around the table to try to make some things happen and I'm so grateful for that experience because it is um led to everything that Second Harvest has been able to do since then. You know, how we re-envisioned our role to be so much more than just uh, bringing in um, food that would otherwise go to waste. So that remains a huge part of what we do. What can we do to actually strengthen the community as a result of our efforts? And what kinds of partnerships are necessary uh, to make that happen? But none of this would be possible without our food donors. You know, food banks are funded primarily through private sources. And so if you were to look at our balance sheet, right now it's about $100 million a year. But $85 million of that is the value of the food that's donated to us. And that's what makes what we do such a robust model. Um, And often it is food that would go to waste otherwise. So why not do something with this incredible abundance that we have in this country
0: of really, really good food to improve people's lives? So often your solution to a, a hunger situation is to be able to hand off a bag of staples. What's the place of the bean in that bag?
4: Well, oh my gosh, it's non-perishable. It's protein. It's highly nutritious. Um, it it is definitely something that becomes a staple for us. Whenever I mean, if you were to go into any school pantry, you're going to see beans there because it is so highly nutritious, but also because it's so it, because it does mean so much culturally. To people in South Louisiana to have access to that food that they love. So, the, you know, the importance of uh, meeting people where they are um, and giving them the food they like. Uh, we are trying things like we, we call an order ahead program. We try to think of how do we make Second Harvest more like an Amazon, where individuals who are food insecure would be able to see a shopping list themselves and order what they want? Because often when you hand people a box of food that maybe you think they should have, it's not necessarily what's important to that person or what they like most to eat. So.
0: Tell me the back story on this Camellia Centennial celebration and your involvement with it. Well, I wish
4: we could take credit for it, but we cannot. It is just them. It is the amazing generosity of the Haywood family. And they approached us because for their 100th anniversary, they they wanted to do something which demonstrated what they felt were their values, which was giving back to the community. And so they came to us with the proposal, we are going to make it possible for you to provide a million meals, a million meals to people who are food insecure. And we're going to bring a hundred of our team members to your food bank. And we're going to have a kind of party um, packing these boxes of of beans and the fixings so that people could put together this wonderful food. But they're also working with retailers across South Louisiana. And so every time you buy Camellia beans, they're going to make a monetary donation to help us uh, meet and perhaps exceed that million
0: meal mark. What difference for your organization will a million bowls of beans mean this year?
4: Well, you can think about it this way. We probably reach about 300,000 people a year. So we would be providing three meals for every food insecure person across South Louisiana. That's an amazing, amazing um, help to people that are food insecure. when we say food insecure, we're talking about people that are worried about making ends meet. So they start cutting back, they buy cheaper, less nutritious food, or the parents may go without food in order to feed the children or they send the children hungry to school. So we're talking about, we call it the meal gap that we want to fill. And we know that that number across South Louisiana is 70 million meals. That's a really, really tall mountain to climb a million meals is huge is huge in getting us towards our goal in a state like louisiana with people like this who are so generous who know so much about caring for each other i've never experienced it anywhere else i think people could bottle up the compassion that we have here in south louisiana and a lot of folks could benefit from it
0: That was Natalie J. Rowe, president and CEO of Second Harvest Food Bank, the largest anti-hunger network in South Louisiana. Coming up next, we step outside our Louisiana Eats studio for a tour of the Red Bean City exhibit in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Our guide is a member of Camellia's fourth generation, Vince Hayward. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now celebrating their centennial by donating one million bowls of beans to Second Harvest Food Bank. What a way to say thank you to the community they call home. To learn more and view the new video by award-winning documentary filmmaker Joe York, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Which dish is the most emblematic of New Orleans? Some might say gumbo, some may Others might suggest crawfish or jambalaya, but most, like our very own jazz great Louis Armstrong would say, red beans and rice. Louis loved them so much, every letter he wrote was signed Red Beans and Rice,ly yours. When it comes to red beans, no one knows beans better than Vince Hayward of Camellia Beans. We toured Camellia's exhibit at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum with Vince to hear his unique perspective on all things red bean.
1: Yeah, yeah, what we've done is put together uh, an exhibit and the idea was to uh, depict the cultural significance of the dish of red beans and rice to the city of New Orleans. It's really a something that's become synonymous with the city and and sort of woven into the fabric of our culture
0: so I see the year 1836 take us back to 1836 and tell us how the red bean story begins for camellia
1: brand so in 1836 one of my great great grandfathers was in Bermuda for some reason and he decided to come to America and um, he landed in New Orleans as we surmise his travels took him uh, from Europe through the Caribbean up into the city and it was there that he really discovered dishes that were bean centric and particularly red beans that dish really came out of Africa and as the flow of trade came from Africa up through the Caribbean into the United States um, New Orleans and anyone in that region would have been very familiar with those types of beans and ultimately that dish.
0: So it begins with Sawyer Hayward, your great-great-however-many-great's grandfather, but the bean story really picks up in 1913.
1: Yeah, so as a family, we were always in the trade of agriculture. We transported goods and products to New Orleans, to the merchants in the French market, and over the years, that's been everything from onions to almonds to of course beans and, and every type of edible agriculture. As you know as the family just began to put down roots over the last couple centuries, our line of business and products have kind of just slowly whittled themselves down to dried beans.
0: So from 1913, when Lucius Hamilton Jr, starts in the food trade working for the National Biscuit Company. He finally decides to have his own business then, yes? In, in
1: 1913 he, he went to work for the National Biscuit Company. It was where he learned the grocery business, he learned the value of branding. As the retail grocery trade began to get away from things like general stores, mom-and-pops, and and slowly we began to get to the idea of supermarkets, he decided that he would have his own brand. So when it came time to come up with a brand name, uh, one of my grandmother's favorite flowers was the camellia. At a time when horticulture really meant uh, some type of prominence or wealth if you had money to decorate your home with nice plants and things like that. It, it, it gave a feeling or sort of a symbolic testament that that these were products for people that really demanded the best and wanted something that was a little extra. The next part of the exhibit is just kind of a, a depiction of what beans in a grocery store would look like. Starting in 1927, and there's also some open barrels here with some beans that uh, provide an interactive opportunity for uh, kids or adults, really, to just kind of run their fingers through the beans. It's really sort of addictive. So
0: fun. (laughs) But sadly, the fun of scooping the beans out of the barrel was something that went away with the little mom-and-pop stores, the old traditional
1: stores. World War II was a very pivotal point in our society. It was kind of the advent of consumerism and with that, the supermarket. Certainly, it was a very pivotal part in our history. We realized that we had to get very good at packaging beans and branding beans. And It was about 1947 when we fully transitioned into package. An experience that the consumers would have if they would reach onto the shelf, pick up our package of beans, and it would make a very distinctive.
0: There's that crinkling yeah, sound. crinkling
1: noise. Cellophane is a plant fiber, and we packaged all of our beans in a very clear, crinkly, rigid film. And it gave us a, a very distinct and unusual presence. We don't use cellophane anymore, but we, over the years, we've been very careful to keep that crinkly, rigid feel, tactile part of our packaging.
0: Well, it's just so nice to be able to look through and see the product.
1: Well, it's true. I mean, I can't tell you how many discussions we've had in our office about how clear the film is. Is it clear enough? Is it providing us, the consumers, a really open window into what they're buying? And um, over the years, it's also driven a necessity on our part to make sure that the beans in the bags are as perfect as they can be because um, we don't hide behind a big label and it's we're just sort of out there for the whole world to see. Um, what that instilled in us is just an absolute dedication to the quality of what goes in there. One of the things that drives that quality is the, the generational relationships we have with our farmers and our growers and you know my grandfather did business with their grandfather and whenever harvest comes you know the only the best quality are set aside because they know they've learned a long time ago that we won't accept anything that's not absolutely perfect
0: from the early beginnings at the French market where has the company moved throughout the city
1: so fortunately we've only had to move two times we went from the French market to our first warehouse production facility in the early 20s which at the time was located on South Front Street that street now is called Convention Center Boulevard
0: <laughs> that's a big change yeah
1: and our building was there until the early 80s when uh, it was demolished to make room for the World's Fair from there we went to um, Elmwood so we're in an Elmwood industrial area near the Huey P-Long Bridge we're right next to the river We chose that area because it was a good location for trucks and rail cars to come in and deliver the products to us and um, trucks to carry the products back out to um, the retailers and the distribution centers. But those are the only two buildings we've ever been in other than the French market.
0: Why do you believe we eat red beans on Monday in New Orleans?
1: Well, first of all, it's just a fantastic tradition, right? And like all traditions, their roots are sometimes not exactly clear. Um, But the most predominant explanation has been about wash day. And traditionally, the lady of the house did the wash, the cleaning, uh, much of the manual labor on Monday. And because beans are such a hearty food item, that they can cook hours upon hours so it made sense to cook these beans hours upon hours freeing her up to do the rest of her work while dinner was being made and then once she's finished and exhausted and completely kaput there they were ready to feed the family maybe it's becoming a little bit outdated in modern times but we haven't come up with a better one The dish of red beans and rice is something that unites people across all colors, all race, all ethnicity, all income levels, you know. No matter where you live in this city, chances are you eat red beans and rice. Also, people have fond memories of serving red beans that their grandmother cooked, or maybe to their children and things like that. So, for these reasons, it's a dish that's important to us as a society and a culture, and we wanted an opportunity to celebrate that and and the Southern Food and Beverage Museum just provided the perfect venue.
0: What are your red beans like? What's the secret ingredient in the Hayward pot of red beans?
1: Part of uh, my experience with red beans growing up is was that because it's our recipe on the back of the bag, we felt like on the back of the package, I should say. We felt like it was important that we stick to that recipe if we're going to if we're going to tell people that this is the proper way to cook red beans that's the way we're going to eat them and both my parents always felt strongly about that growing up that's how we made them exactly what's on the back of the package we used smoke ham hocks and cooked them a long time till they got real soft and creamy and i'm getting hungry just thinking about it <laughs>
0: <laughs> well vince thank you so much for both walking us through red bean city and doing your part, along with your family, to make sure New Orleans stays Red Bean City Central.
1: Well, thank you, Poppy. It's been a great pleasure, and uh, you're such a treasure, and I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Vince Hayward, CEO of L.H. Hayward, parent company of Camellia Brand. Since 2017, Slow Food USA has gathered together food leaders from across the globe for Slow Food Nations, an event that celebrates slow and sustainable food systems through summits, workshops, and street festivals. When Louisiana Eats attended back in July 2018, we spoke with New Orleans' native son, Richard McCarthy. Richard is the founder of the Crescent City Farmers Market and at that time, the executive director of Slow Food USA. Richard and I tucked into a cozy spot downtown where almost 100 food producers and organizations from all over the world set up in an open air market. He explained how beans are a vital part of Slow Food's mission to provide good, clean, and fair food for all.
2: Our theme this year is food for change, recognizing that indeed food is a cause of climate change. One fifth of carbon emissions are due to food. Food is also a victim of climate change. The loss of biodiversity is is tragic. And you know, when I think about that, I get really depressed. I want to curl up in a fetal position. Except that when I think about food, more importantly it is a solution for climate change and it's one that we can taste and touch every single day and what we need to begin to change the narrative of these sort of old-fashioned businesses like Camellia beans is that they're in carbon farming they support the farmers who are putting carbon back into the soil there is nothing more important than more grain and legume and bean production. And they do that not in some little boutique corner of the world, they do it in mainstream supermarkets impacting everyday people with everyday cooking. And then add on top of that, their business is dried beans. And I'm sure, Poppy, you've experienced this. Young people have no idea how easy it is to prepare a meal with dried beans. They're opening up cans. They're opening up their freezer. Dried beans are like, I think almost the answer to the very question about is the food movement, is slow food elitist? I can't think of anything more slow food than eating a meal prepared from dried beans. And that is the food of peasants. That is the food of ancient food, of communities who farm and live and eat and believe in a place. Food is and should always be so much more than just fuel. Food provides us with a profound sense of joy and pleasure, first of all. And this is our mirepoix of the food movement. First of all, profound pleasure. Secondly, an important sense of identity. And I think of the red bean. It says we are Creoles in New Orleans. The pinto bean, we are Mexicans, or we are First Nations in the Southwest. An important sense of identity, and we must defend our identities in a time of horrific global homogenization. But beyond that, the most important element is the third, which is that food is a bridge between people. And we have got to build more bridges and fewer walls. And food is the means to do that.
0: That was Richard McCarthy speaking with us in 2018 at Slow Food Nations in Denver. How do you ensure your red beans and rice are creamy and delicious every time? We'll continue the discussion and make sure you're ready to cook our hometown classic when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans' French Quarter and a world away. This week's culinary quiz question brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. How do you ensure your red beans and rice are creamy and delicious every time? Let's start with the beans. If you've been listening to this week's episode, you know that I'm going to say camellia red beans are a great place to start. For complete novices, just follow the cooking instructions on the camellia bag. I soak mine overnight before I simmer them for several hours, making sure to stir the beans frequently. It's the stirring that helps with the creaminess. Now about that rice. First, use Louisiana rice. Next, in a sauce pot, double your proportion of water to rice. If you're feeding four to six people, that will take one cup of rice and two cups of water. Next, bring the pot to a full rolling boil. As soon as it boils, turn the fire down as low as it will go and cover the pot. Here's the hardest part. No matter what, don't lift the lid and don't stir the pot. That's exactly how the rice gets ruined, because starch combined with liquid and a mechanical action, that's you stirring the pot, equals gluten. While gluten is exactly what you want in bread dough, it's disaster in a gluey, sticky pot of rice. So for perfect rice every time, after 20 minutes on that low flame, fluff up the rice grains with a fork, and serve with your creamy red beans. I'm Poppy Tooker, and Camellia brand red beans guarantee some real Louisiana Eats.
5: I'm Jamie Warwick. I'm the research and development chef for L.H. Hayward & Company.
0: Next, we go behind the scenes at L.H. Hayward & Company, the business that makes Camellia brand beans, to meet one of their newest employees, Jamie Warwick. Among her responsibilities, Chef Jamie formulates new products for all the company's brands, like expanding the new line of Camellia brand seasoning and dinner mix products. She also works with D'Agostino Pasta and Gulf Coast Blenders, two of the company's other concerns. But Jamie's eyes really light up when it comes to talking about camellia beans. Born and raised in New Orleans' Ninth Ward, her relationship with camellia was established long before she got the job.
5: Oh, yes. Like, that's all my mother cooked with, my grandmothers, like, my whole family. Like, that's the only beans that's allowed in our house. There is nothing else that compares to Camellia. So this is my thoughts before the job. So now that I get to work with everybody and, like, see all the love that's poured into it all the time, like that makes it so much, like, more special.
0: Do you have any particular red bean memories from growing up?
5: Um, So I do remember a lot of times, like, doing different things as far as, like, okay, so it's Mardi Gras time. We would do Mardi Gras floats. Sometimes we would use the beans to decorate the floats or sometimes we would use beans like to uh, decorate um, for Valentine's Day to like use it to uh, color in the heart and just like using them to learn how to count. (laughs) We always had beans in our house. Like that was a staple. That was something that we always had. We could go to anybody's house in the family and get some. So they were very um, instrumental in my growing up.
0: And what was your path to becoming a chef, Jamie?
5: I have always known, since I was a little girl, that I wanted to be a chef. I remember um, in about sixth grade, I was homeschooled, and I went to uh, a homeschool called Cornania. They taught us a bunch of different things, as well as like having us do projects of like what we wanted to do in the future, And so I always knew that I wanted to be a chef. So that was the first time I ever, like, came up with a business plan for a restaurant. (laughs) So uh, I did that there, and then I moved on to high school, and I actually had to do it my senior year of high school. I had to make another business plan. I was like, hey, I have experience in this. (laughs) So then I went to college at Northwestern State University, and I have a bachelor's in business. um, But I minored in culinary arts. So culinary was always a part of my journey. Um, I went to the Louisiana Culinary Institute after that. And then I recently finished at the University of Holy Cross's food science program.
0: Tell me about your family's reaction when they learn that you're about to become the queen of the bean. <laughs>
5: everybody was excited like my mom my dad were the first two that I called um because uh I mean I have friends that are like out of town that I talk to often but um it, it just meant so much more for like all of my New Orleans people to hear like hey guys I'm gonna be working for Camellia and they were like what for <laughs> real?" And <I'm> like, yes <laughs> <laughs> so it was a big thing um and, like, every time I'm, like, doing something or they can find me somewhere on social media or on the news or something, they're always excited. They're sharing it with everybody. <laughs> so my family, I it's, it's, oh, man, I can't even put into words how proud they are because I know that they are. Jamie, tell me about what your work entails with L.H. Hayward. Okay, so L.H. Hayward owns Camellia Brand, which we're speaking about, but we also own two other companies, Gulf Coast Blenders and uh, D'Agostino pasta. So D'Agostino pasta, we make um, homemade pasta right here in the city of New Orleans. And then uh, Gulf Coast blenders, we do like uh, breadings, custom uh, fish fries, um, seasoning blends. And um, so what I do is I'll work with customers to come up with new blends or um, introduce them to how to use our current product line. So Uh, The whole process is really fun because, like, every day is different.
0: (laughs) There's nothing like being able to tap into your personal creativity, huh?
5: Yes. That's um, completely why I wanted to get into the field um, because it's so easy to get stuck in, like, the restaurant world of doing the same thing over and over again. Whereas, like, here I'm always developing. So I'm always coming up with something or re-innovating something. Let's say, for instance, there's a new product that uh, the team is excited about or want to try. So then the next step would be to come to me to see if it's something that's possible to do. Um, If people like it, is it something that uh, I can coordinate? And how fast I can do it, or do we have ingredients in house? Do I need to source different things? So that's kind of like the beginning process of it. And so then I make it, and then we go through like a taste testing phase where we'll have like um, different people around the building, or um, uh, for all three companies, everybody will get a little taste of it and see, and you know, kind of like fill everybody out to see if this is something that the market would like. And then from there, you know, we pass it on and we, we go up the ladder and we talk with sales and everybody. And it's a big team effort. Jamie, for people
0: who may not have had the chance to see those seasoning mixes, it's kind of a little bit of magic because you've taken all the chopping out, haven't you?
5: Yes. So uh, there are the herbs, um, the vegetables are all in the box with the seasoning. And then all you need to do is add water and, and pour the beans in. So the instructions on the back will tell you everything you need to do. Um, and it, it, it takes a lot of the work out of it where you don't have to think about how much seasoning I need to add to it or is this enough. But also it's something that you can create to be your own um, because I'm the type of person, I like to customize some things. So um, like I said, we use pickle meat, but some people may not. Some people may want to use vegetables Instead of using pork or beef or whatever it is, you know, whatever protein they want. Mm -hmm. So uh, the box is good. Like it tastes really good. But like I said, it's also customizable to your taste and it's vegan friendly. So that helps as well.
0: Jamie, in your experience Mm -hmm. with food science Mm -hmm. and everything you know about beans, Mm -hmm. would you illustrate for us what a vital part of the food chain the beans and rice bowl can be?
5: Oh, yes. So, of course, the beans add protein um, if, you have, if you don't have the meat yourself. Uh, they're also a great source of fiber um, for anybody who's looking for that. Um, and then with it being a legume, it's just essential to have as part of your daily meal. Um, at some point during the day, you could have a bean or a pea or a lentil, and it'll help um, make sure that you get all of the source of vitamins that you're required to have every day.
0: Tell us about your kids and, and, and their experiences with beans, because I imagine you're raising them right.
5: Oh, listen, I have one son, five years old. His name's Jackson, super bright. Oh, my goodness, I love him, super energetic, very affectionate. The light of my world. <laughs> I don't know if you could tell, but like my face lights up just even thinking about him because he he changed my life completely, which also led into me switching from a restaurant chef, which is really hard on a body, a lot of night shifts, and knowing that I had him and and, you know, it's just him and I. So making that switch from a restaurant chef to R&D chef which is more of a nine-to-five gig. I mean, there are times when I'm outside of the normal hours, but however, for the most part, it's between regular business hours. So to have the opportunity to pick him up from school every day, do homework with him, bring him to school in the morning, that's amazing. So I love it. And then he loves red beans too. <laughs>
0: But he must have loved red beans before you became the new bean queen. Yes, he is. Listen,
5: <laughs> red beans were a staple in our house, like I said before. So, and even his daycare before the school he's at now, they served red beans or white beans once a week at least. So, he is very familiar with camellia. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was Chef Jamie Warwick. Research and Development Chef for L.H. Hayward Company. Walk into any mom and pop restaurant in the Crescent City on a Monday, and you'll see them serving red beans and rice. But it might surprise you to learn that in New Orleans' finest old Creole restaurants, places where you may never have seen a bean before, on Mondays, there's just as likely to be a pot of those humble beans simmering in the back. We end this week's show with Chef Chris Lusk of Antoine's Restaurant, the oldest continuously operating family-owned restaurant in the nation. Though he's a native of Texas, Chris has long been immersed in New Orleans culture, having honed his culinary talents in Crescent City kitchens. You're from Texas, Chris. So it's my understanding that you probably didn't grow up eating red beans and rice on Mondays, did you?
3: No, we won't even put beans in our chili.
0: (laughs) Well, Chris, when did you first come across that ubiquitous bowl of beans?
3: The first time I came here in college, we had red beans and rice. It was on a Monday because we didn't know any different, but <laughs> I tried them for the first time and thought, wow, this is amazing. You know, I grew up with canned beans and pinto beans and different things, and when I got here, I was like, oh, you've got to get red beans. And I'm like, okay, and they go, you have to buy camellia. My first experience of cooking red beans was actually at Commander's Palace. Every Monday, staff meal was red beans. And that was intimidating because everyone makes red beans a certain way. And at first, I didn't make them the right way. (laughs) So I learned quickly to make good red beans.
0: What were your early errors?
3: Uh, Undercooking, not putting enough seasoning in, um, too wet, too dry, not getting that perfect balance. Now, I've done everything with red beans from crusting oysters and red beans to making red bean curries. But red beans and rice, traditional, is something we've done for staff meal in almost every restaurant.
0: Well, that is so interesting to me to hear your flights of fancy with the humble red bean. Where were you taking these chances? And and, and tell me a little bit more about what you were doing.
3: Well, a lot of it was when I was at Cafe Adelaide, and we just kind of experimented with different things. We made a red bean flour. We cooked red beans and then dried it out and made a flour and crusted our oysters in that. Um, The red bean curry was something I made for staff. We had a lot of people from India. So one day we did not have lentils, and I made a red bean curry, and everybody's like, oh, wow, this is great.
0: (laughs) So, Chris, you're at Antoine's now, and Antoine's is open on Mondays. What do the staff eat there?
3: Well, they might just be having red beans on most Mondays, because why not? It's a great thing to have, and we have camellia red beans, so we make red beans. That's the one thing, other than the Saints in New Orleans, that ties everyone together. No matter what socioeconomic level you're at, everyone eats red beans. (laughs) ¶¶
0: Chef Chris Lusk of Antoine's, New Orleans' oldest restaurant. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans... Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Palmerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladue. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.